As we continue through our study through the book of Nehemiah, I uh, recalled this last week a time where one of my favorite professors in seminary told the story of, of an end-of-year reception that they had for international students. He was a missions prof, and he said at the end of each year, they'd spend some time together debriefing for the year, and, and there were students from all over the world that attended the seminary that I went to, and he told the story, this prof told the story, that at the end of the year, this one family was sharing their experience in seminary, that it was great, and they really enjoyed their time, but they said every time that they were in their dorm room that was on campus, they were always really cold. So we're always just really cold. And then somebody said, well, well, did you adjust the thermostat? Now, this family was from West Africa, and, and they said back, what's a thermostat? Because they had never experienced that before, right? Like, there was a component of this that you say, well, how crazy is that, right? Like, that they would have moved in in the summer, and, and probably in Dallas, it's hot there, you know, and so they had the air conditioning cranked, but then they, they ended up living through that. You, you wish you could go back and, and kind of fix this problem for them, right? But it, it struck me when I heard that story that there's a way for some of us to choose to live our lives where we have access to a thermostat, that we can change the environment that we're in, that we have this promise that we, we have from our Lord, that he has provided for us, that he's good, he's with us. And what we see from Nehemiah when we study God's word together is we see that Nehemiah was a man who decided to not just live in his circumstances. In fact, he wasn't like a thermometer where it just, it just goes along with, with what the exterior circumstances are. He didn't just give in to pressure. But instead, what he chose to be was to be a man who chose to change the circumstances. And it was always because of the goodness and the provision of God. That he was a man who prayed first. He was a man who, in the midst of opposition, was somebody who saw God as the most important thing about him. And today, what we're going to look at is we're going to look together at these times where Nehemiah experienced, experienced direct opposition, where there were individuals that chose to get in the way of the rebuilding effort. And it's ironic because they're going to show up at a time where there's actually success taking place. There's actually rebuilding taking place. We'll see in the text that there's this description that half of the wall at this point had been rebuilt. And it was because of their success that their enemies got nervous about what was happening. And they, they start to come in and they start to threaten them. They start to, to, to accuse them. They start to do all these things. And it's amazing as we study them to see that there are ultimately going to be some people who just cave under the pressure. That they just give up. That they're done. That, that they say the rubble's too high. It's too hard. We can't do it. But there's other individuals that choose to follow the leadership of Nehemiah and they say, our God is so great that it literally eclipses any individual that would attempt to stand in the way of what God wants to do. And I don't know what your life is like. I don't know what your week has been like, but I'm guessing for those of you who are striving to be Christ followers in a world that's broken, that there's a component of this that, that we recognize that, that there will be opposition to our faith and our culture. First and second Peter, it, we're reminded of this fact that it ought to not shock us when people look at our faith and, and say, that's weird, or that's different, or that doesn't mesh with my world. But there's a component of this that I believe that Nehemiah models for us in, his, in God's word that, that allows us to see that through understanding God's provision for us, that we can be people who not just survive those things, but ultimately accomplish the very work 
that God has desired for us to do. So you and I can be an individual that can be a thermostat, or we can be a person that's stuck being a thermometer, reacting and running. The thermometer lifestyle is the individual, like the pinball that's in the machine that's bouncing around. In Psalm 1, it describes it like a person who's tossed in the wind. And there's a component of this that I think for some of us, we choose to dwell there. But what God desires to do with us is to give us the privilege of being a part of what he wants to do. Will there be opposition? Of course there will be opposition. But I believe as we study three different sections from three different chapters in the book of Nehemiah, due to the fact that it's not sequential, but Nehemiah is going to show us this story as it unravels. We're going to see three separate glimpses into the opposition and we're going to see how Nehemiah responded to that opposition. And what we're going to see from his life is that he embodied this idea that opposition gives us opportunities. What we know historically, every person who's ever tried to be a part of change ever understood, understands that it is impossible to lead without opposition. By definition, leading means that we're pressing into change, right? And that there's a component of this that people are on the outside saying, are we sure? Are you ready? Is it time? Can we? Is it possible? And I love this word from Jay Sidlow, um, Sidlow Baxter when he says, whenever the saints say, let us arise and build, the enemy says, let us arise and oppose. There's no triumph without trouble. There's no victory without vigilance. There's a component of this truth that I find it to be so crystal clear that he's saying there's going to be opposition when we attempt to rebuild. But what's beautiful about the story in the context of Nehemiah is that they're actually pulling it off. They're doing something that's spectacular. The enemy's threatened by their success. And so ultimately it leads the enemy to take these drastic methods to attempt to stop them. And the way the enemy's going to do this is that the enemy's going to attempt to sow seeds of discouragement for them. And I, I can't help but think about our own lives and the way that we respond to opposition. That, that those seeds of discouragement have the potential of taking root in our lives in such a way that we say, you know what, I'm out. Uh, it's, it's too hard. It costs too much. We're actually going to hear individuals say that, that we're a part of the rebuilding process. That they're going to say it's just too difficult. And they're going to cave under the pressure that comes to the Israelites in the rebuilding process. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to pick up our story there. Remember that, that we're unfolding the story of the rebuilding process. Next week, we'll celebrate the rebuilding of the walls. But here, what we see is that we're halfway through this process. And what we get to see is this snippet of individuals that are describing the opposition to the rebuilding of the wall. In verse 1, it says this, chapter 4, verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and he was greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews. This man, Sanballat the Horonite, shows up often in the text, and he's one of the great opposers. He's from Syria. He's a leader. He's a ruler. And, and we guess that part of his anxiety and tension and pressure was that this rebuilding of the walls threatened his own personal well-being. It was a threat to him. So he surrounds other individuals that are going to attempt to oppose the rebuilding of the wall around him. And it says in verse 2, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria. Now, there's armed men that are standing around ready to fight. What 
are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubble and the burned ones at that? You know, it's ironic is that they are going to, right? It's not going to be one day. It's going to be a handful of days. It's going to be, be a few more days, but they're going to ultimately complete this. They're going to restore the temple worship. They're going to see the walls rebuilt. And there's a component of this that even in their mirth and their accusation, there's this element of, yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. And here we see Tobiah in verse three. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. He just mocks them. What, what is that? You know, this man is an interesting man, Tobiah. His name in Hebrew literally means Yahweh is good. Can't imagine how this felt for Nehemiah. This man was a man who we, we assume grew up in a Jewish context that knew the same stories that Nehemiah did, that, that he knew the vision that God had to restore his people. And yet what we're told in the text is that he had a divided heart, that he had become a servant of one of the traditional enemies of Israel. So here he was, whether knowingly or not, he was a man who was doing something that was evil, opposing what God wanted to do. And he's doing it in the context of those who are supposed to be a part of the rebuilding process. So here he is, he's standing. And in this, this horde of accusers and mockers, they, they use all their tools, right? They're ridiculing, they're mocking, they're false accusations, threats, subtle attacks. These are all tools of the enemy. It, the deceiver we know in John 10, 10, his desire is to steal, to kill, and to devour, right? That's what he's good at. And here we see in the text an example of this. And the text goes on to say, though, that Nehemiah um, says in verse 6, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I've had several of you after church ask me about, so why do they need to rebuild the wall? What's the, what's the big deal, and what's this? What was happening there? In those days... When slavery was so rampant, it was such a dangerous place to be. Some of the, the stories, when we hear the story of the Good Samaritan, there's a part of the geography of that where there was almost an assumption if you're outside of the city that you were at risk. And so in this context, inside the city with the walls being down, there were a tremendous risk of raid and those who would be on the outside to be quick to destroy the Israelite people. And so there's a component of this that they were at risk because of the fact that the walls were down. And I love the way Nehemiah words it, that he, he says that it's joined, the people had a mind to work. But then it goes on in verse 7, and it says, But when Samballot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the, the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem, and to cause confusion. Now, that, that's fascinating to me. So they're threatened. The text says they get angry. We, we know that anger is a secondary emotion. It's something that comes from other things inside of us. And here, they're threatened. They don't like to see the success. They're, they're binding together in order to get in the way of what God wants to do here. And it goes on to get very, very personal We'll skip forward to Nehemiah chapter 6, and we're going to look at four different ways that the deceiver attempts to cause chaos in the life of the rebuilding process, in particular in Nehemiah's life. 
We're going to see the deceiver distract. We're going to see him discredit, discourage, and ultimately attempt to, to deceive. And, and in, verse, in chapter 6, what we see is this, this process that plays out. The first is that they attempt to distract Nehemiah. We're told that, that Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakamphira in the plain of Ono. Now, I, I don't know th this context. A lot of historians have tried to guess at this, but, but this, this kind of feels like a distraction in the desert. They're, they're enticing him into something that is a distance away. And ultimately, Nehemiah's response is that, that there's no way that I can do that. I'm busy. I've got work to do. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop? And while I leave it and come down to you. And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered to them in the same manner. There's this, this distraction. They want to do something. I, we lived in California close enough to Vegas that it kind of felt that way, right? Like that there's always out there. People were distracted by it. Some, some people call it their happy place, right? And there's a component of this, that there's this distraction that's out there. Nehemiah says, there's just work to be done. And he decides to press forward and in that pressing forward process, it's, it's interesting to see that they move on to another effort to discredit him. Now, you might read this and you might say, well, who would give in to distraction? I love this, this portrayal of Samson and Delilah. If you know the story in, in the book of Judges, there's, there's a, an element of Judges, Judges 16 where, where Samson, here he is, a man gifted by God, tasked by God to do something tremendous as a judge of God. And yet Delilah in her tempting, he, he ends up giving in to her. And then it goes from distraction to multiple times. He goes through this, this process of her saying, so what is the secret of your strength? He tells her, and then she ends up doing that thing to try to break his strength. And he's not smart enough to put it together that this is something that puts his very life at risk. And ultimately he gives in and it wreaks havoc in his life. He's imprisoned, he's blinded. And he ends up going through this tremendously painful process. He just got distracted, right? And there's a component of this that Nehemiah, to his credit, decides that he's not going to give in to that. The second thing that the deceiver wants to do is that he wants to discredit. He wants to uh, slander. Now, this is in the area long before Twitter and Facebook and, and social media. But what is going to happen now is that they're going to attempt to slander his name publicly. We're told in the text that this is an open letter that he sends that, that has this accusation of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, who could you really be trusted? Can Nehemiah be someone who, we know he worked with Artaxerxes, and we, is he really a trustworthy man? And then this open letter, he has his accusations that are put out there so that all can hear. Now, we do this, don't we? We see this all the time, that there's, there's individuals on the outside that we hear something about them, and through the gossip line, we pass it on from one person to the next, and we say things like, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? And, and in this context, the accusations are dead false, concerning Nehemiah. We know this about his character. We know that he defends himself later, but there's an element of the deceiver that just wants to lead to just discrediting the leadership. And there's a component of this when I see it, when, when you look at Nehemiah and you just accept the fact that there's a way for this to ultimately lead him to be deeply discouraged. But what I, I love about Nehemiah is he articulates what he's going through in such a crystal clear way. The way he puts it, he says, for they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work 
and it will not be done. Nehemiah is just calling it out. This is what they want to see happen. They want us to be like a thermometer that just gets caught in the moment, that gives up. The heat's been turned up. We're giving up. But instead, what Nehemiah says, isn't it cool to see what he says? But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. In other words, it's time to get back to work. There's a component of this that, that he's saying that what the deceiver wanted to do was to discourage the work because that was going to be helpful for keeping the rebuilding of the walls done to, to not happen, to keep it down, to keep it in its rubble state. And I will confess to you this morning, one of the, the hardest experiences of my pastoral ministry, one time I was in a context where I was leading a ministry and I was about to go up on stage to lead something. I was talking with another person who was a part of the, the ministry that we were doing. And, and I hear in the background, this guy say some version of, hey, don't listen to Sean. He's just a jerk being a jerk. That was the exact quote that he said. What? Yeah. And I look back, I don't recognize the man but then he proceeds to accuse me of, of this, like, of not honoring him and having these, and he lumps me together with some of the other leaders that were in the ministry that I was in. And, and there's this moment when I interact with him, it was in a public setting, it was painful, and, and I ended up scheduling a time with him. And when I sat down with him later on, one of the things that was fascinating to me is the things that he said to me about me as he goes through the list, I want to be clear, he had about a thousand things that he could have said about me, about my ministry or leadership that are areas that I have to grow in. But the irony is about the five or six things that he picked were things that I, I think I'm praise the Lord are areas of strength for me. And you know what struck me at that moment is that I realized that the, the deceiver is doing something because he doesn't want me to work on my stuff, right? that he doesn't want to bring up to the surface one of the a thousand that are true, but he's doing this at a time of ministry, in a time where he wants to steal away. And you know what's great is the guys that he associated me with were some of the most gifted and godly leaders I've never known in my life. And so there was a component for me going through this that it was extremely painful. But if I gave that person the privilege to discourage me in ministry, then I ultimately believe that I'd be compromising, right? And there's a component of this. I don't know what, what are the things that have the potential of discouraging you in ministry. But for me, I did listen. For me, I did hear. But then I did also run it through the process of just accepting, like, what is, what is really happening here? And Nehemiah is really good at identifying when someone is attempting to deceive and that's exactly what was happening with these accusers, that they were attempting to deceive these individuals away from the mission that they had. And in this context, these verses are really heavy because there's now an attempt on Nehemiah's life. And what's fascinating about it is that it's going to be done in the context of a religious situation where, where Nehemiah is going to be tempted to go into the temple and then ultimately they had someone there that had been assigned to assassinate him. And so the way the text describes it, he says, let's meet in the house within the temple. Let's go close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. And, and so he, he uses this false statement that ultimately was the temptation to go and to be a part of this, this, this deal that would ultimately put his life at risk. Verse 12 says, And I understood and I saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because of Tobiah the Sambalit had hired him. We have no idea how he found this out, but he understood that this was a total threat to him 
Verse 13 says, for this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. So the deceiver wants to steal, kill, and devour, right? And in this context, the deception was ultimately to attack his character, to tempt him to do something that went against his heart. And uh, you may have heard this, this illustration before, but the story goes that there's a man who um, was uh, going through a fast food line and he ended up receiving, instead of his meal, the day's deposit of cash that they had mixed up the bag. So they give him a bag full of cash and he pulls away and then uh, he realizes what it is, that it's not a cheeseburger. So he goes back and returns. And by that time, they had already noticed that the money was missing. And so when he comes back with the bag, you can just feel it in the room that they're celebrating that it's been returned. And they, uh, somebody in the room calls the, the news company to say, come, come and report on this. Oh, no, no, I don't want that. And, and then uh, they, they, they like, why? And he said, oh, well, because the person in my car isn't my wife, is what he's saying, you know? <laughs> It, you know, when it comes to character things, Nehemiah is actually going to say that my character really matters to me. And something that grieves me in our culture, you hear it in the news quite often, is that in our culture, uh, you see stories of, of pastors, people associated with Christianity that that they have given up on their faith or they've, they've chosen to not honor the Lord in their life. And, and we have to be careful to confuse that kind of persecution that comes from us not honoring our namesake well with persecution that comes from individuals that are actually, in this case, they're accusing Nehemiah because of his righteousness. But if we aren't people who live out our faith well, that, that honor the values that are dear to us, then, then it's appropriate for people to stand back and say, well, is that really, is that really the values that you hold in your heart? I uh, drove by somebody yesterday that, that had believer on their license plate, like the, you know, the words, and I thought that was super cool. But I did look extra close to see how good of a driver they were. You know? my, my wife, I have a, my seminary like, license plate on my back. My wife tells me I have to take that off because I'm not that good of a driver. <laughs> but, but you guys get it, right? Like when, we, when we put ourselves in the context of associating with Christ, that there's a component of this that, that the ability to question our character ought to be the assumption. And we ought to be people like Nehemiah, Nehemiah that are willing to fight for this, to, to say that how could I allow them to give me a bad name? So, so the shame, uh, the sadness of this story, when we talk about these seeds of, of discouragement that take root in a person's life, is that it actually worked. These 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 external attacks actually worked in such a way that we see in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 10, that, that there were individuals that were able to say, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the walls. What we know about fear is that it can paralyze. We know that fear can be infectious. And we ultimately know that when that deceiver steals, kills, and devours, that ultimately some, some give up. And that's what we see. They, they end up basically quoting those who said that this rubble could never be rebuilt. But what we see as well in the midst of this, what I love about that John 10, 10 passage that I quoted earlier, is that, is that there's a way for the deceiver to steal, kill, and devour. But the Lord has come 
that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly. The truth of the gospel is that we are no longer a slave to sin. But I get this, this image of a chain that, that, the, that, that through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that that chain has been cut, that it was severed. We are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. That he's, through the work of the cross, set us free from the laws of sin and death. And there's a component of this that we find ourselves just celebrating the fact that we do not have to give into the enemy. But through the work of Christ, what can happen is that opposition can result in action in such a way that tremendously positive things happen. So what we see with Nehemiah first is that Nehemiah remembered the prayer that was outlined to God's people back in Genesis 12, that, that God would bless his people, that there would be a promise and a restoration of his people. And we see it clearly in this passage that he says, Hear, O God, we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. You notice what Nehemiah does here with this? is that he's not the judge and jury. He's not repaying evil for evil, but what he's doing is he's saying, God, you got this. I, I trust you that you are just and that you will protect your people. And the first thing that he does is that he prays. Admits the external opposition. Nehemiah believed that God could handle it. That it was too important to give up on the mission. He was convinced that this was God's mission and he persevered in prayer. What we also see is that Nehemiah trusted that God was in this and he acts accordingly. This is, this is probably my favorite passage of all of these to see. The, the wording of this is so beautiful in terms of Nehemiah's response to the persecution. And I looked and I rose and I said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. There, there's a rekindling of the mission that ultimately says, we, we got a big God. He's good. He can handle this. He's got this. And there's a component of this that we, we see the momentum that comes because ultimately Nehemiah saw what they were trying to do. He opposed it and he got busy moving forward. And ultimately the end result was something tremendously powerful that the rebuilding process continued on. But there's another form of opposition that might shock you in the book of Nehemiah. And I think it shocked Nehemiah. It says that we, we heard earlier about exceedingly angry, right? Or individuals who are angry at the rebuilding of the walls. This section shows what made Nehemiah angry. And in the context of the Israelite people, there was something that was an internal persecution an internal opposition that was so infuriating to him that it sparked him to action. What he had found is that there were individuals, some of which who had been sold into slavery, illegally had been taken, and so that he it was a part of the restoring process, that they'd been set free. Now they're back in Israel, they're in this, this community, and people were buying and selling them again. That there are people who were ripping them off because of the unique circumstances, that they were... They were um, having high levels of, of expectation in terms of repayment. And there's just this component of the, this process where Nehemiah is shocked because there's this tremendous injustice that's happening in the name of God's people. 
and the destruction was palpable. I like the way that um, James Vernon McGee, if you have ever heard James Vernon McGee, he's got such a kind, soft spirit. And this, these words are shocking to me that he said these, but they're, they're quite profound. He says, some of the brethren deal with wrongs in the church by sweeping them under the rug with the excuse that they want to maintain a Christian attitude by being sweet and nice. That's not acting like a Christian. It's acting like a coward. Ward Wearsby puts it this way. He says, Nehemiah was not a politician who asked what is popular or a diplomat who asked what is safe, but a true leader who asked what is right. There's a component of this that Nehemiah is going to say that this infuriates me. And, and Chuck Swindoll, in, his, in a book that he wrote about the book of Nehemiah, he gives us three responses, I'm sorry, four responses to individuals that would, um, would promote injustice or in the process of experiencing injustice. And one of the things that he says is that the first thing ought to be that we determine to stop the wrong. And I think that this, this is crystal clear in the text, that they were, um, they were ripping each other's off. They were, they were stealing from one another. They had high standards of repayment expectation that broke the law of God's people and ultimately, what he decided to do was to, to stand up against it. He said, let us abandon this extracting of interest. The second thing that, that um, Chuck Swindoll outlines is that we ought to be people who make specific plans to correct the wrong immediately, regardless of the sacrifice involved. There, there's a component of this that, that he talks about repaying, and he talks about stopping and ceasing and doing this wrong. And and I, as I shared a story of someone who had an accusation against me that was, was painful, I'll share a story in my own life. I, as a youth pastor, there was a time when I had some, some leaders that were on my team that I had delegated something to. And then after the fact, I, I undelegated it. I took it back and I, um, I did something that really hurt them. And they scheduled this lunch. I can remember where we were at. They they scheduled this meeting with me and I came and I didn't know what we were talking about, but they just shared about some of the things that I had done that really hurt them, that offended them, frustrated them, discouraged them. And as I heard it, I just listened to them and I thought, oh, they're totally right. I, I totally did something that was unkind, that wasn't respectful, that I, I did them wrong. And, and instead, of, uh, instead of just hearing that and just being discouraged, what it led to was ultimately that there were some changes that took place in that ministry that were super helpful, super healthy. And, and I, I bring that up as an example of, of many examples to be able to say, if, if you're a part of an injustice, or you're doing something that, that cuts across what God wants to do, Nehemiah ultimately says, we've got to stop this and we got to move forward. The, the third thing is that he declares it, the plans for correction and a promise before God. That Nehemiah says ultimately to God, we want to get this right. We want to do everything in our power to do this right. And then finally realize the seriousness of the vertical promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. That there was a component of this that that Nehemiah is saying, when we realize that there's opposition that's coming from within, we just take it really, really seriously. If you can put your yourself in the shoes of Nehemiah, I can only imagine what it would have felt like to have had direct public opposition of what 
God was doing, that, that he was convinced that this was God's mission, and yet he had to power through that. But it seems to me that the part that was most infuriating to him or most discouraging to him was the internal conflict, the, the part of individuals that were on the team that ended up not living out the faith that God had, but, but ultimately what he chose to do and that, what that Wearsby quote and the J. Vernon McGee quote is emphasizing is that he chose to take action and to be a part of even the restoration of the character of God's people internally. And I, I want to suggest to us this morning that, that there's a component of all of this that, that when it comes to our experiences in our life, we ought to anticipate conflict. We ought to anticipate opposition to what God is doing as we attempt to be a part of God's mission here in our community and, and representing the gospel. Well, we ought to assume that. But when it happens, we can choose to be people who are like the thermometer that is stuck in it, that responds to it, that's reactive. Or we can be people like the thermostat adjuster that says, you know what, I'm going to allow the authority and truth of God's word to ultimately be the highest judge in this. I'm going to keep moving forward. We're going to keep taking the hill. We're going to keep pressing forward because we believe that this never was our mission, but that it was God's mission that he gave us the privilege to be a part of. In terms of application this morning, I want to ask you to um, search your heart and ask three specific questions in your own life. When you personally face opposition, how do you respond to that? Is it uh, something that ultimately forces you on the bench to give up, to retreat, to, to step back? Or are you a person that is able to overcome because of the authority and strength and provision of the Lord? The second question is, Nehemiah reminded the people to remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And a question for us this morning is, what happens when we forget that? When we forget that he's great, when we forget that this is his mission, that we get to join him in? And then finally, a question that is important, I think, to each one of us is, what is it that is happening, an injustice that's around us that God's asking us not to ignore? There's a component of this message this morning that ought to be a reminder to every one of us that we will experience opposition. It may be some of these things. It may be all of these things. But through the strength and provision of our God, we have the ability to not crumble under that pressure, to not let those seeds of discouragement take root, and to be able to be a part of what God wants to do in and through us, not because of our greatness, but because of his strength. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. And I thank you for these images as I read the story of Nehemiah that he embodied an individual that, that completely and entirely trusted his Lord. And I pray that for each one of us, that in the midst of challenging circumstances, Lord, that we would be people who trust you that we embrace our circumstances to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that we press on to the mission that's at hand, not choosing to look to the left or to the right, but because you're good, because you're our namesake, because you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We thank you for this privilege to study your word together. We ask that you would continue to be at work in and through us in only the way that you can because you're an awesome God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.